everybody. It is Tuesday, August 29th, the last Tuesday of August. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Osh Winunu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Jill, I understand it is a very special day in your house today. It is. It is my husband's birthday. He hates birthdays, um, or at least he hates his own <laughs> birthday. But I figured I need to just say, happy birthday, Mikey. Happy birthday, Mike. It's a big on this day in history. We'll return to it uh, later in the in the podcast. Any big plans today for the man who doesn't like his birthday, Jill? <laughs> no, he he literally said, please don't do anything for my birthday. Like, that is what I want for my birthday. Don't do anything mm. for my birthday. My brother and sister-in-law came over this past weekend with the kids, and they were like, can we bring a cake, please? You know, just for the kids' sake. It's fun for them to, you know, for the rest blow of us, the candles, yes. et cetera. So I said, yeah, for the kids. Um, but yeah, I have agreed to not really celebrate it. I, I think he's probably going to be cringing as he listens to this podcast, actually, now that you mention it. I mean, at this point, he's the longest segment in the show <laughs> right now. We'll see. We'll see how we do. All right. So with that, let's get to some news. Hurricane Idalia strengthens in the Gulf as Florida prepares for landfall. What to expect and why more people than ever could be in the eye of the storm. The U.S. breaking new records when it comes to oil production. So why is it not directly translating to lower gas prices for us here in the United States? We've got a trial date in one of the four criminal trials for former President Trump. Why a growing number of Americans are choosing not to insure their homes. It's not just NFL players. A new study exposes the CTE dangers for young athletes. An all too familiar headline, a shooting on a college campus, this time at UNC Chapel Hill, just as fall classes get underway. And a powerful reunion as a man who grew up in the United States meets his biological mom for the first time in Chile. And Moshe's on this day in history. Well, Joel, we already discussed the biggest thing in history, Mike's birthday. <laughs> it turns out he shares a birthday with The Zipper and Netflix. Two things that I think he likes. Gift idea. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's start with the latest uh, with Idalia. That storm strengthened near Cuba as it moves towards Florida's west coast, threatening to strike as a major hurricane Wednesday with life-threatening rains and storm surge. The winds from that storm forecast to reach Category 3 strength at 115 miles per hour as it makes landfall Wednesday after hitting western Cuba, according to the National Hurricane Center. The cone currently takes it in the Big Bend area of Florida that's between Tampa and the Panhandle. But forecasters say even slight deviations could happen and that could instead send the storm straight into the Tampa-Sarasota area. And also, given the extreme warm temperatures off the coast of Florida, state officials fear that the storm could even become a Category 4 storm when it makes landfall tomorrow morning. Hurricane, tropical storm, and storm surge watches and warnings all been issued for most of Florida's West Coast as the state is urging mandatory evacuations in certain parts of the area labeled Zone A, and that includes the Tampa Bay area. Dangerous flash flooding also expected across Florida's West Coast, the Florida Panhandle, and even southern Georgia. President Biden speaking with Governor Ron DeSantis Monday and approved the state's emergency declaration to the federal government on Monday morning. Yeah, good to see cooperation there. Despite the election, the two getting on the horn, talking through the issues, making sure uh, Floridians are ready. The federal government is ready. Everyone is ready. More than three million 
Floridians and 8 million Americans overall are in the cone as we record this. The Gulf of Mexico is at its warmest level since record keeping started back in 1981. That's more than 40 years ago. Forecasters say that once sea surface temperatures surpass 84 degrees, fully formed hurricanes can undergo what's called rapid intensification. Right now, for your reference, Tampa Bay is just about 90 degrees warm, record high temps, a couple degrees warmer than usual. And that is what is leading forecasters to be concerned here, that they could see some things that they rarely see with hurricanes. Keep in mind, this is also the neck of the woods in recent years where we saw Hurricane Michael and Hurricane Ian, both storms that basically overnight went from Cat 1 to Cat 5, and that's without these record high temperatures. Certain areas could see up to an 11-foot storm surge based on the latest forecast late Monday night. And because of the shape of the Florida Gulf coastline, this could be really bad when it comes to storm surge. It's a concave shape, so apparently that leads to bad storm surge. Also Wednesday night, Jill, a full moon. So that already impacts waves and water, and so throw that on top of the hurricane here. Key context here, this area saw Hurricane Ian just about 11 months ago farther down the coast, uh, but still the west coast of Florida here, and basically the authorities are warning that anyone could be impacted. Hurricane Ian did about $110 billion in damage. The insurance industry is still dealing with that. Some companies have actually pulled out because of this continuing hurricane threat year after year. And then you have the population growth. I know you discussed this in the Mo newsletter today. But just the west coast of Florida has seen insane growth over the last 50 years. The Fort Myers area growing more than 600%. The uh, Sarasota-Bradenton area growing nearly 300%. And Tampa Bay-Clearwater also growing about 200%, now home to more than 3 million people. And so the last time you see these significant storms, especially on the upper west coast of Florida, you have to go back decades after decades before this population boom. All right, everyone. So if you are on the West Coast of Florida or in this area, please stay safe and heed those local warnings. Really important. All right, let's talk energy news right now. U.S. oil production forecast to average an all-time high of 12.8 million barrels a day this year and keep growing to 13.1 million in 2024. That is according to the latest forecast from the Federal Energy Information Administration. For context, that's about half a million barrels per day more than the prior annual record, which was set in 2019. It's also more oil than any other country on the planet produces. The next closest nation, Saudi Arabia, which produces about 10 million barrels a day. We at Mo News try to give you the news and also some good trivia answers because you could definitely see this coming up uh, somewhere because it's not what you expect, right? Not at all. If you ask most Americans, Jill, they would probably say, oh, Saudi Arabia totally has the most oil or some country in the Middle East. They would be surprised at the news that for a couple of years now, the U.S. is the largest producer of oil. But it's for a relatively straightforward reason why you don't know, because there's a Democrat in the White House who isn't going to stress the amount of oil breaking new records when it comes to oil production because there's a whole bunch of environmentalists and people in the Democratic Party who don't want to hear that sort of news. At the same time, you have Republicans who want to take over the White House, who want to take over the Senate. So they're not incentivized to talk about the good news of oil production under Biden either. They want to reinforce, as they have been, Tim Scott, Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, you can look back at the past couple of months now, they want to stress, you know, Biden could do more. We should be producing more oil. Gas can be cheaper. So Republicans don't want to give Democrats credit. Democrats don't want to take credit. And so it turns out this is a piece of news <laughs> that is actually hard to find out unless you're digging for it. 
That is what we do here at Mo News, Moshe. <laughs> okay, so this increase also showcases this major uptick over the last 15 years, actually, from a low of about 5 million barrels a day that was back in 2008. This new number, 13 million, probably enough to help the U.S. maintain its title as the number one global crude oil producer. Production in both the U.S. and globally forecast to increase even further next year. World output also expected to grow to about 103 million barrels a day in 2024. That would be up 1.7 million barrels per day from this year. Over 70% of that growth is expected to come from non-OPEC countries led by the U.S., Brazil, Canada, Guyana, and Norway. So you definitely can win some bets at a dinner table if you throw some of these (laughs) factoids (laughs) at people. So then the question naturally is, why isn't gas cheaper and why does the U.S. still import oil? Right now, if you look at the price of the pump, the national average is $3.84. That is up $0.60 from January, and it's still set to go up a little bit. Now, it totally differs by state. I often throw out the national average, Jill, and I'll get notes from people in California or Washington State being like, it's $5.50 here. And I'm like, well, because the deal is with gas that states charge various fees and taxes. So uh, based on the proximity of your state to where the oil comes in, or based on the taxes in your individual state, obviously prices differ. So there's this mega high production here in the U.S., yet gas prices go up. So what's the deal? Well, first of all, not all oil is equal. There's light crude, there's heavy crude. The type of crude we uh, produce here in the U.S. is different than the crude they have in Norway, is different than the crude they have in Saudi Arabia. And it turns out that crude oil is used for many different things, not just gasoline. Uh, It's used for a whole variety of consumer products. Um, You have diesel, you have gasoline, you have jet fuel, all these various products that use oil, and you need different types of oil. And so ultimately, the U.S. needs to sell its oil and needs to buy other people's oil because, again, there's different oil. Secondarily, there's logistics. Because oil is a global market, you know, keep in mind, the president doesn't just turn the dial on oil or gas prices, folks. I try to reinforce this all the time on Instagram. It's a global market. So logistics matter. And in some cases, it might be more cost effective to refine certain oil down the southern part of the U.S. and sell it to Mexico or sell it to South America, whereas the East Coast, it might actually be cheaper sometimes to buy oil from Europe or abroad, again, depending on the logistics here. And so that explains why we import oil, why we export oil. As far as the prices right now, why they're up a little bit over January, well, that has to do with a couple factors. One, Saudi Arabia and Russia have cut production to try to get the price up, you know, less supply, equal demand, prices go up. Then, key issue, the U.S. has some of the largest refining capacity in the world. It turns out that a whole bunch of refineries uh, paused on key renovations and things they needed to do during COVID. They are now doing overhauls they postponed during COVID. So that is decreasing refinery capacity. On top of that, the record heat this year we've seen in the South, many refineries start losing productivity after 95 degrees. So when the temperature outside is more than 95, they can't run as high and as hot as they typically do. So you have heat bringing refineries lower. You have renovations bring refinery production lower. Refinery costs go into the price of gasoline. Then you have the production costs abroad. And so... All of that, folks, is just a bit of the picture here. We explained it in a deep dive over on the Mo News Premium Instagram account. So go check that out. If you're interested in this and you're interested in winning an argument with your uncle uh, (laughs) and some good news for all of you um, as we leave you with this story, right now, based on projections from the energy thinkers and uh, analysis think tanks out there, 
They're predicting that pump prices will ease next year um, as the oil supply outstrips demand. Yes, until OPEC pulls back again, right? <laughs> <laughs> until until the crown prince of Saudi Arabia and Vladimir Putin decide to cut production. But that's the thing. You know, you have multiple global markets, a lot of things factoring in here. But there was this big realization, Jill, in 2008, you said the number. We were only producing 5 million barrels a day. And that was at the end of Bush going into Obama. And despite, you know, kind of the environmental push on the left, there was a realization that the U.S. needed to do more to increase our domestic production. And now you've seen it. We've nearly tripled production over 15 years. And then there was the, you know, cataclysm of COVID that really brought down production. And there's been this reset since 2019. And now you're breaking new records in terms of oil production. And that all comes against the backdrop of climate change. And how do we transition the energy economy? So there's a lot of interesting factors going in here. Um, we discussed it also, by the way, over on the Instagram account. But if you actually inflation adjust the price of gasoline the past 50 years, it's been flat basically at $4 since the early 1970s. So if you take the price of gas back then, which was like 60 something cents a gallon, put it in 2023 terms, it was actually $4.40 a gallon. That's how much people were paying proportionally for to fill up their cars. By the way, the cars back then were getting like seven miles to the gallon. <laughs> Today, gas is like three eighty. dollars So you, it's actually been flat to going down for 40 years. That's as everything else has become more expensive. So we like to complain. We like to like live in nostalgia where gas should always be the same price no matter what year it is. Uh, and actually, if you look at it, inflation adjusted, which I know doesn't really work. Which like nobody cares or does that. <laughs> nobody cares much. Nobody cares for this spin motion. I just wanted to throw it out there at people. The only spin that I think is somewhat relevant when it comes to gas prices is when you look internationally at what people are paying. Yes. And then you're like, okay, maybe it's not so bad four bucks a gallon here in the United States. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but in Europe, for example, it's like almost double that. Oh, sure. Seven, eight, nine dollars. I've run these numbers before on the Instagram account. We actually have the like, we're in the bottom 30 in the world when it comes to gas prices. There's 180 countries that have more expensive gas than us. The only ones that are cheaper, honestly, are like impoverished countries that have uh, are swimming in oil with government subsidies like Iraq, um, Syria, Venezuela, uh, for the most part, among the developed world, we have the cheapest gas. All right, guys, something to smile about. <laughs> you could, you could. <laughs> Do you, does everyone Motion. feel better? <laughs> Motion. It's still costing me a hundred bucks to fill up my car. Your podcast was so annoying today. <laughs> I just filled up my tank today, actually. So I'm kind of cringing. Okay, time now for a quick word from our sponsor, Bowl and Branch. This is a sponsor that we truly, truly love here on the Mo News podcast. Bowl and Branch has made the summer of record heat a bit easier with some very soft and breathable sheets. We first got them in our house a few months ago and really have been loving them. They get softer with every single wash. Bowl and Branch, that is B-O-L-L -L and Branch sheets. They are made with organic cotton. And without some of the harsh chemicals that are used by other brands, that is something that I did not know about, actually, um, until I started to do some research into Bowl and Branch. And right now, they're offering a very special deal to the Mo News community. You could sleep better at night with Bowl and Branch sheets. You get 15% off your first order when you use the promo code Mo News at bowlandbranch.com. That is Bowl and Branch, B O L L A N D, branch.com. The promo code is Mo News, M O N E W S. There are some exclusions, so see site for details. 
Time now for the speed read. We've got another date for one of Donald Trump's criminal trials next year. This from NBC News. The judge overseeing former President Trump's election interference case in federal court set a trial date for March 4th, 2024. It is a schedule that could have a crucial impact on the 2024 race for the White House. The trial will begin in the middle of the Republican presidential primaries. In fact, a day before Super Tuesday. Now, during a hearing on Monday, U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin heard arguments from Trump's lawyers and federal prosecutors about when the case could be set for trial. On the one hand, special counsel Jack Smith proposed that the trial start in January with a jury selection starting in December of this year. Trump's team, on the other hand, saying that the trial should be pushed back until April of 2026 after the presidential election. Chutkin said, quote, these proposals are obviously very far apart. Neither of them is acceptable. So she went much closer to uh, the prosecution's date than Trump's date in 2026, saying that's completely unrealistic. I'm not waiting two and a half years to have this trial. She said Trump will have to prioritize the trial and that she won't change the trial schedule based on his professional obligations. It's the same for a professional athlete, the same for anybody else. And she's like, I don't care that you're running for president and that's your job. Ultimately, you have to be here for this trial next March. She said the public has an interest in the fair and timely administration of justice. Trump's lawyer said that the trial next year would violate Trump's rights, noting the millions of pages of discovery the prosecutors have turned over. Trump's lawyers said, this is a request for a show trial, not a speedy trial. Chutkin replied, this case is not going to go to trial in 2026. She pointed out that Trump's team has had time to prepare already. The public has known about the existence of the grand jury investigating Trump since September 2022, a year ago, and the identity of many of the witnesses has been known. So break out your calendars here for a second. I'm putting it in my Rolodex, Mosh. Here we go, because we're going to be covering it on this podcast. In October of this year, the civil case begins in New York. This is the case against Trump's businesses. And it could lead to the banishment of the Trump Corporation for a tax evasion and other issues in the state of New York. In January, you have the E. Jean Carroll defamation case part two, based on the recent criticism that Trump has made of her. This is after the 5 million that she's already um, gotten for defamation. This is after a previous jury found him liable for sexual assault. Then also later in January, you have a trial for a pyramid scheme that the Trump Corporation and his children are accused of engaging in. So it's a separate civil case. Then you go to March 4th, which is this case, the criminal case, a day before more than a dozen states, uh, primary voters vote in the Republican primary. Later in March right now, Jill, is the uh, second criminal case in New York, the Stormy Daniels indictment related to hush money payments to his attorney. Now, that case might have to be pushed back the judge Chutkin saying uh, on Monday that she's been talking to that other judge in case her trial goes long. This is literally what's happening. Judges are having to call each other being like, when is your Trump trial? Okay, we have two more here. In May, you have the classified records case out of Florida. Right now, that's a preliminary date. This has to do with a lot of classified documents that could get pushed back. But right now, that is uh, tentatively scheduled for May. Then the one case we're missing is the Georgia election interference case, not this federal election interference case that we've been discussing. Now, that could happen anytime. This is Trump along with 18 others who've been indicted. Some want the case to happen ASAP and could happen within the next seven weeks. Trump 
again, doesn't want this trial to happen until 2026 either. And so we will be waiting to see what unfolds there. One of Trump's co-defendants in the Georgia case, his former White House chief of staff, Mark Meadows, took the stand in Atlanta Monday. He's pushing to get the trial moved from state court to federal court, arguing that under the Constitution, he was working for a federal employee, the president, and therefore, this should be a federal case. Though keep in mind, some of the accusations related to Trump and these 18 go into 2021 after he was president. So that might be one of the arguments they make, saying, no, this had nothing to do with him being president. He was still pushing to overturn this election into 2021 after he was serving. So four criminal trials, three civil trials. We sit here in August right now. Uh, six of seven have dates attached to them, and we're waiting on the Georgia case. And I don't even know what I'm doing tomorrow, Mosh. <laughs> Jill, just be thankful you don't need seven teams of attorneys representing you in seven different cases. Okay, sign of the times. This from the Wall Street Journal. American homeowners are increasingly foregoing home insurance, gambling that the likelihood of a disaster isn't high enough to justify the cost of a policy. Some skipping insurance say they're doing it because they can no longer afford the rising premiums. The national average for home insurance based on a $250,000 house. Well, that increased this year to $1,428 a year, up 20% from 2022, according to Bankrate. By the way, many people uh, in this country, depending on where they live and how prone they are to natural disasters, would say that that would be a bargain for them. Yeah, 12% of homeowners in the U.S. don't purchase homeowners insurance at all. About half of them have annual household incomes of less than $40,000 a year. That is according to a survey in 2023 by the Insurance Information Institute, an industry trade group. Others, apparently a few among the wealthy, say they have enough money saved to rebuild or just move elsewhere should their home be destroyed. Must be nice. <laughs> we're going to just leave it. <laughs> we're we're out of here. <laughs> I have a couple of thoughts on that, Jill. I'll discuss those in a second. <laughs> the risks of foregoing a policy are pretty significant. When you don't have insurance and your home is destroyed by a fire, you don't just lose your house and its contents. You might also have to pay for removing your home's remains as well as the costs to rebuild it. Yeah, not a good strategy, uh, but understandable given just how expensive things have become. Few people can financially withstand the loss of an uninsured home. Financial advisors will tell you not to press your luck. And it's particularly precarious considering the high price right now to rebuild or buy a home in many areas of the country. So apparently what happens here is that if a homeowner has a mortgage and doesn't purchase insurance, the lender, the bank, will typically buy a lender-placed insurance for that property. So what happens? Lender-placed insurance is generally more expensive than the coverage homeowners can get. And then the premium cost is then added to your monthly mortgage. So you're sort of paying for it anyway. The higher cost of policies is a blow right now to existing and hopeful home buyers. You have to add that to your monthly costs as you uh, consider buying a home some borrowers right now are delinquent on mortgage payments and are blaming their late or missed payments on unexpected increases in their insurance premiums. The journal piece includes a number of interesting examples here, talking to some people who have done this. Uh, Jill, going back to the really, really rich people who don't have homeowners insurance. So they apparently, some of them have done the math and have determined that at 6 to 10% annual market increases, if they're putting their money in the market, that's better than paying insurance. So they've run that calculation. Again, must be nice. But again, that's their calculation. They can put their money to use in another place and then just deal the ramifications of their home later. 
Scott Galloway, friend of the pod, who doesn't know he is friend of the pod, uh, he actually always talks about the fact that he has made the calculation not to have health insurance. He said he's done the math and it's just less expensive for him to just pay out of pocket when he or his family needs to go to the doctor. And God forbid somebody gets really sick and, and there's something really costly, he can afford it. The reason I bring it up is just because I think it points to this this idea that insurance, which is it's literally what we count on in case there's a tragedy, whether it be our health or something in our home, um, increasingly just out of reach. From ESPN, not even young amateur athletes are safe from CTE, an Alzheimer's-like disease resulting from repeated head trauma. This is according to a new study from the Boston University. CTE has long been linked to professional football, among other impact-driven sports. But BU's research discovered more than 60 cases of CTE in athletes who were under 30 years old at the time of their death. In fact, the researchers determined that 63 of the 152 donated brains that they studied, that's about 40 percent, had already developed early signs of CTE. Researchers also think that they've diagnosed the first American female athlete with the disease. CTE, which can only be fully diagnosed post-mortem via an autopsy, can cause memory loss, confusion, aggression, depression, and other memory and mental health issues. So past studies have mainly examined the prevalence of the disease among professional football players. But this one from BU is the first to prove on a large scale that the risk of CTE is still high among amateur and youth athletes. So among this group that they studied, suicide was the most common cause of death, although the research revealed no relationship, direct relationship between the cause of death and the presence of CTE. But this is something that we've seen anecdotally. For years, there were also no statistically significant differences in any clinical symptoms between those with CTE and those without, but symptoms such as depression and apathy were reported in nearly 70% of the athletes, despite almost 59% of them not having CTE. So clearly some opportunity here for further research. In addition to evaluating the brains, the researchers also conducted online surveys and post-mortem interviews with most of the athletes next of kin to better understand the cognitive symptoms that presented before their death. And from ABC Charlotte, a faculty member was killed and a suspect taken into custody after a shooting that locked down the UNC Chapel Hill campus for three hours Monday afternoon. The community sheltered in place and waited for updates after they got reports of a shooter on campus. They fielded texts from concerned family and friends. They asked themselves questions like, am I sitting far away enough from the window? And is there anything in this classroom that I could use as a weapon? Rumors and media reports with unverified and sometimes conflicting information only added to that fear and confusion And then they learned late yesterday afternoon that a faculty member was shot and killed on campus. The UNC chancellor confirming the news. The faculty member's identity not being publicized until the family has been notified. Campus police say the suspected shooter in the case is in custody, but the identity of that suspect not being released because formal criminal charges haven't been filed yet. And the weapon used in the shooting also uh, not found. Yeah, that was as of late Monday evening. And one of the reasons, Jill, the lockdown lasted so long because the suspect was taken into custody around 2.30. They didn't give an all clear to tens of thousands of members of the community till just past 4 p.m. They said that that roughly two-hour delay in police arresting the suspect and issuing the all clear was to ensure they had the right person. The entire campus was safe. Classes were canceled yesterday and uh, are also canceled 
for today. And Jill, it comes as there was a tragedy down at University of South Carolina over the weekend, completely unrelated. Uh, this is the story of a 20-year-old sophomore named Nicholas Donofrio from Connecticut, who's just beginning his uh, second year at the university uh, and had just moved in, apparently uh, had gotten lost, according to the reports, knocked on the wrong door. The people there thought it was a burglary, shot him and killed him. So they're mourning his death right now on the campus down there at University of South Carolina. I know a number of you uh, who follow us at Mo News had reached out about that story. And Mosh, now to an incredible story from the Associated Press. A 42-year-old Virginia man hugged his biological mother for the very first time this month after they were separated at birth and hadn't seen each other since. The two meeting for the very first time at her home in Chile earlier this month. Jimmy Lippert Tyden, um, that is his name. He's told his mother, Maria Angelica Gonzalez in Spanish, hola, mama, I love you very much. So let's go back a little bit to, to walk through how this even happened. 42 years ago, hospital workers took Gonzalez's son from her arms immediately after his birth, and she was later told that he had died. This was actually a case, though, of what's called counterfeit adoption. It's a child trafficking scheme that coincided with many other human rights violations that took place during the reign of General Augusto Pinochet. And it's estimated that tens of thousands of babies were actually taken from their families in Chile in the 1970s and 1980s. But this reunion uh, between Tyden and his biological mom, it actually came after a months-long international search for his biological family. Uh, his journey to find his mom and his birth family started in April when he happened to just stumble upon a news story about Chilean-born adoptees who had been reunited with their birth relatives. Yeah, so he reads this news story, and then he would learn that he was one of them. He decided to take a DNA test from the genealogy platform MyHeritage, which confirmed that he was 100% Chilean. The test also matched him to a first cousin who also uses the platform. So Tyden sent the cousin his adoption papers, which included an address for his birth mother and the very common name in Chile, Maria Angelica Gonzalez. The, it turns out the cousin did have a Maria Angelica Gonzalez on their mother's side and helped connect them with the woman who was ultimately identified as his mother. Gonzalez, however, wouldn't initially take his phone calls because adoption stories like this are sometimes exploited for financial gain. So she was skeptical. She's like, there's no way you are my son. My son is dead. I was told he was dead. That is until he texted her a photo of his wife and daughters. Uh, and there began a conversation. So this reunion led Tyden back down to Chile, not just solo, but he traveled with his wife, his two daughters to their newly discovered family. For the first time, Gonzalez got to meet her displaced son, her new daughter-in-law, her two new granddaughters. Tyden got, for the first time, to meet his biological brothers and sisters. It's a really incredible story. Jill, I, I don't know that many people know about what happened during the Pinochet regime. Just terrible human rights violations there in the 70s and 80s. And, and as you said, tens of thousands of children were taken from their mothers in this elaborate human trafficking operation. This involved midwives and doctors and nuns and priests and judges who were all getting rich in Chile off of this, uh, all fulfilling a goal of Pinochet, which was to make Chile an economic success, but rip apart these families. And so we spotted the story um, on Monday and thought, you know, it was important to tell people about. 
if there's anyone out there who's who's looking to tear up a little um, and watch this story, I recommend the video is incredible. Uh, Tyden uh, told the Associated Press, he did this video call after the reunion, and he said, how do you hug someone in a way that makes up for 42 years of hugs? And in both cases, Jill, it's it's not her fault and it's not his fault, right? He was a newborn and she had her child taken away from her. And apparently this happened to a lot of impoverished families at the time in Chile. The only question I have, Motion, I'm not sure if you know, uh, do the families in the United States realize that this is kind of like this counterfeit uh, adoption or did they think it's all on the up and up? Listen, I can't get in the minds of the people who adopted these children, um, you know, what was going through, what they knew. Um, it was clear at the time that this was a whole convoluted scheme. You know, they weren't directly telling families in America, by the way, these were taken away from families. They had developed fake agencies, um, a whole variety of things um, to sort of launder what was actually happening. Um, but now that these stories are getting out there, I mean, here, look at the case of Tide. He literally read a news article about it went through a DNA test and got to the bottom of his story 42 years later. All right, now time for On This Day in History. We're going to be in 1893. An American businessman and inventor, Whitcomb Judson, was granted the U.S. patent for what he called a clasp locker. Now, you might not be familiar with a clasp locker. You might know it by its more modern name, Zipper. So happy 130th birthday to the zipper. On this day in 1949, the Soviet Union tested its first atom bomb. This was just about four years after the U.S. had the technology. It was a direct copy of the fat man bomb used by the U.S. military over Nagasaki during World War II. All right, Jill, we go to the 1970s now for your contribution to On This Day in History. <laughs> On This Day in 1977, my hubby, born a few weeks early, actually, Happy birthday, Mikey. We love you. Mike, if you thought we were talking about your birthday at the beginning, guess what? We're talking about it again. <laughs> He's never going to listen to this podcast again. <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> 20 years later, do you know who you share a birthday with, Mike? Netflix, created on this day in 1997 by entrepreneurs Reed Hastings and Mark Randolph. It was originally a video rental company. You might remember those little red envelopes. They officially went away this year, actually, and it would later expand into the video and streaming behemoth that many of us either pay monthly or have someone's password for. And on this day in 2008, I remember it well, I was in Dayton, Ohio, John McCain named Sarah Palin his running mate the first time a woman appeared on the Republican presidential ticket. Uh, Jill, we woke up that morning, many people might not know, I was a Fox News reporter covering the McCain campaign on the bus, on the plane uh, with him throughout that campaign. Many of us woke up that morning, they kept this a secret. And typically the VP name will leak out like a day in advance, a few hours in advance. They kept this one solid. In fact, many of us didn't know how to pronounce her name. I did an appearance on Fox News that afternoon, um, as did several of my colleagues calling her Sarah Palin, because we didn't know that her name was pronounced Palin. That's how little that was known about uh, the governor of Alaska at the time. It's so funny because at this point, I just see Tina Fey and her impression yeah. of Sarah Palin, um, which was <laughs> so spot on. It was incredible. If you ask people today, they will say, oh, Palin said she could see Alaska from her house. I'm like, no, she didn't. Tina Fey said that <laughs> as Sarah Palin. So it's, these, you know, certain SNL sketches that sort of, you know, get really ingrained in the culture and you forget what actually happened versus um, the satire. 
All right, we end here with a bit of music history. On this day, 42 years ago, 1981, Hall and Oates released their song, Private Eyes, They're Watching You, uh, a uh, iconic 80s hit. We fast forward to a bit later in the 80s, another iconic hit, La Bamba by Los Lobos, reached number one on the Billboard charts. And Jill, a favorite of yours, made her debut on this day in 2005. That's Rihanna. She released her debut studio album, Music of the Sun, which had the hit song Ponder Replay. Yeah, so the backstory here, Jill, she's a 17-year-old from Barbados. She auditions this song in front of Jay-Z. He says, wow, I'm signing you to a multi-album deal. At 17, you know, the, the song explodes, if you remember that time. Uh, and of course, the uh, history is written. Jay-Z has talked about how, you know, that hit, he realized that he had, you know, a mega hit on his hand, a mega singer on his hand. And she was just a teenager from the Caribbean. Very cool. All right. We want to thank you for listening to the Mo News podcast. If you like what you hear, share this with your friends. It will help us grow. We would really appreciate it. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode and review us in the App Store. And thanks to all of you who joined me last night for uh, Mondays with Mosh on Instagram. It's been a regular every Monday night for nearly three years. Me and my wife uh, answering your questions about the news started during the height of the pandemic when we were all home. Um, I let them know last night, but just to let all of you know that our regular Monday nights uh, are done for now. But we will continue to answer your questions every day. We're doing it over on the Mo News Premium Instagram account. Uh, and also, uh, we'll be making a point now of heavily advertising our hotline, the Mo News hotline, 1-800-711-MOSH, M-O-S-H, 1-800-711-MOSH, where you can ask your questions and we'll do regular episodes where we answer your questions about the news, sort of Mondays with Motion Al style, but uh, taped uh, and with your voices. And so uh, we're looking forward uh, to doing that on a regular basis. Uh, and, you know, when big stuff happens, I'll pop up on Instagram. Don't worry. <laughs> You're not getting rid of Mosh uh, too quickly. <laughs> <laughs> and we have this whole daily podcast and we have this whole daily newsletter and we're doing like 400 stories a week on Instagram. So I hope you guys are getting enough. More Mosh, more Mosh. You know what? I love Mondays with Mosh and Alex. Um, so I will miss it. But I, of course, get a lot of QT with Mosh during this podcast. Um, but Mosh, thanks for doing it. Uh, during the pandemic, you kept a lot of us company. So we appreciate it. And you guys kept me company and we got to have some really good conversations. But I don't want to say goodbye because it'll continue. It's just continuing in its new forms, including on this podcast. Okay, bye everybody. Later. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.